Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Creating Confidence Communication and this is your host, Kelly Riley. In this podcast, we teach authentic ways to have better connection, more confidence, and better relationships and communicate well. We are creating confident communication and we are so, so thrilled to have Lisa Valentine Clark here. And I'm excited to read her bio. She graduated with a, with a BS bachelor's in English from BYU. She was part of the sketch comedy improv, improv troupe at the Garens and co-founded the theater as improv troupe, The Thrillionaires, which performs original imp- <laughs> improv plays and musicals in a variety of genres. She has been featured in a variety of commercials, including The Real Mom, and in the virtual videos for chatbooks, which are awesome. Lisa works as a freelance writer for commercials, web series, and scripts, and she wrote the book, Real Moms, Making It Up As We Go. I love that. Hosted <laughs> the Feel Good service show, Random Acts, and headlined the musical improv TV shows, Show Offs, for three seasons at BYU. TV. She has starred in movies like Stalking Santa, and was in this was a script and, uh, consultant producer and starred as Carrie Carrington in the film Once I Was a Beehive and Once I Was Engaged. She currently hosts the weekly podcast The Lisa Show on BYU Radio, and Lisa and her late husband Christopher have five children. We are so so honored to have you here today. Oh, thank you. I have actually been able to hear you speak. Um, we were talking briefly, but gosh, you've had, you're just funny. Have you always been funny like that? <laughs> I don't know. Depends on who you ask, right? Right. <laughs> I love to laugh and I love to uh, find the humor and stuff ever since I was little. So, so it just kind of came as part of you. Um, it was funny. I was talking to a friend and the same thing, they, they do speaking and um, she happened to say, you know, Jason, Jason Hewlett is a friend of mine in my speaking association. She said he just started out funny. Like she knew him since he was in <laughs> or, uh, kindergarten and I never was funny. I try to learn to be funny and I literally crack my own jokes and I, I laugh so hard that everybody else just laughs because they think I'm well, a Don't stop. You'd be confident in that. I yeah. do. I love that. Well, will you tell us a little bit about how you got started on this amazing journey? You're, you know, you do all these amazing podcasts and BYU TV. You've been on funny movies. Both, both, you know, once I was at Beehive, we just laughed our tails off. I have a 17-year-old. She's so fun. So just tell us a little bit about how you got started and being able to be confident and communicate and speak and share. We'd love to hear. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, it's interesting as you're saying, you know, describe how this happened. In my head, I'm like, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> it, it, I I really do feel really lucky, feel very blessed and fortunate that I get to do things that I really enjoy. And honestly, like it was like one accident tripping into the next experience, you know, like, oh, maybe I'll do this. I um, grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm one of five kids. All my brothers and sisters are really funny. We have a a good sense of humor and um, lots of inside jokes and stuff. And we would egg each other on. Um, But, you know, I never thought that I I would have any kind of performing career or career in with humor or comedy or whatever. I just knew that it just was what I would do, but that you have to like 
do something regular or, you know, serious for your job. But um, so I studied to be an English high school teacher, which I think is really funny because that is a career in comedy. I mean, more so than anything else. So (laughs) I just, um, I I also feel like the biggest influence on my career was um, meeting and marrying my husband, Christopher Clark, because he found humor in everything. And I really do think that the people that you surround yourself with have more influence on you than anything else, you know, any education or opportunity or conservatory or study or anything. And he was, he always had like these random weird things happen to him that turned into funny stories. He always had um, just a way of describing and seeing the world that was just fun and full of humor and, and um, perspective. And so I, I think that that just like, turned it all up a notch. (laughs) So I studied to be an English teacher. I was for a few years. Then I wanted to have a bunch of kids. We both did. So I did that and um, primarily stayed home with them. We had five kids in 10 years. Wow. Um, But I always did things freelance. I had watched my mom do that growing up. Um, just so many fun opportunities came. So in college, I had done the Garens and I'd, I'd really gotten addicted to sketch comedy and, um, improv comedy. And, um, so I would try to do that here and there. And I started doing voiceover work. It just, you know, somebody said, Hey, have you ever done this? And I was like, Nope, let's do it. And, um, and then, when I, uh, we went, we lived in England for a while while my husband got a master's degree in staging Shakespeare. And when we got home, a couple of my friends were like, Hey, we're going to do long form improv. We want it to be half male, half female, which in the improv world is, uh, and especially in the nineties was, or, or the early two thousands was particularly significant. And there was wanted, more men or more women or why yeah, there it's more, more men. It's dominated okay. by men. It's sort of like a male, um, yeah, male dominated. I'll just, they leave just it didn't that. know how funny we women are, right? How funny oh, a million percent. Um, but sometimes men are ball hogs and that's just how that to use my sports reference. Um, yeah. And so out of the thrillionaires, we, we, we were really making up what we thought was new. I've, you know, other people have obviously done long form improv, but we made up musicals and we'd say, okay, let's do it like in the style of Oscar Wilde or Tennessee Williams or science fiction B movie or John Hughes or, uh, you know, Shakespeare or a Western and we would, or film noir, which was one of our favorites. And so we had all these different genres and we would study them during the week and rent costumes and put on a show at a local music venue called The Valor down in in Provo, you know, as I tucked my little kids in bed and just, you know, snuck off into the night to become a, a new woman. Um, and it was so, so fun. But out of that little side project came, you know, opportunities to do commercials here and there to do. And we always said, we just want to make funny stuff together. But out of that came movies and TV shows and everything great, just because it was just what we were all interested in. And we just kind of egged each other on. So I really owe that to, um, you know, the people who I've performed with. It's like, I mean, literally when people are like, well, how do I do that? I, I just say, well, you just surround yourself with the best people who are 
doing what you want to do and then just give each other jobs. <laughs> you know what? That's what they always say. So remind me, where did you meet your husband? So I met my husband at BYU when we were both English majors because uh, we thought it was more um, practical than theater, which is so funny um, because we both ended up doing that. But so he was there on on an acting scholarship um, and uh, we were in an English society play. So the English majors put on plays. They weren't very good, but we thought we were really with serious actors because we loved the literature and he was cast as Satan in these like Bible videos it's called mysteries creation. And I was cast as a chicken on Noah's Ark. And so we became really good friends. Um, mostly it's just, he made me laugh so hard. And so we just were like instantly connected. Oh, I see. You became his chick, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> see, you are funny. <laughs> you know what? I love that. So what I heard you say was you just surrounded yourself with like-minded people. And yeah. what came from that was just, uh, that's what it is. The five top people you're around the most are who you become, right? That's what we've yeah. always heard. So that kind of got you in a space to start that. And then is that how the movies um, yep. came from there? Yeah. So, you know, years later, and then um, McLean Nelson, who was in it, contacted Haley Smith and me and said, hey, I, we, I really want to make this movie about um girls camp because i saw my mom be a state girls camp director i think we can make it non-denominational i have the, what do you think and then the three of us kind of like mapped it out and talked about all the things we love about it what makes it special unique what makes it weird and bizarre and 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 special and yeah and then we wrote it and um and it was the most fun and it was crazy and it was just this passion project that we didn't know if it would go anywhere. I mean, McLean does. McLean knew he had the vision, but Haley and I were like, even if it's just for no one else but us, we don't care. We're going to do it because we love this so much. That is amazing. Oh, I love that show. And so, your husband was he excited for you, supportive? Oh, he just thought it was the best thing in the world. Um, yeah. And he was always excited and always egging me on to do stuff. And I'd be like, no, I have too many kids and I'm too tired. And he's like, no, I'm, I, I, I'm going to, I'll pitch in and more and you can totally do this. And I'd be like, no, I'm too old or I'm too this or whatever. And he was like, you will be so mad if you don't do it. And, you know, so he was a great, he was the big, our biggest fan. And when we did show offs, the TV show, he came to every performance. And at that time he had been diagnosed with ALS and he was in a wheelchair and stuff. And so getting anywhere was kind of a big deal, but he would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And he's like, this is my favorite thing. So he's like, I love watching you guys do this. And he, he was a phenomenal actor and director and so funny, but he didn't like um, improv. He didn't do that. He's like, Uh That's because I kept always trying to get him to perform with us because I'm like, you would, you know, you're so good at this. He's like, that's your thing. You know, I'm a little bit more dramatic, which is true. Which was amazing. So tell me with the ALS, did that progress quickly for him? Yeah. So he was diagnosed in 2016 and he passed away during the pandemic in 2020 of uh, yeah June. So he, he lived with it for about four and a half years. I don't know if you knew this, which you probably don't, but it's just so amazing how you get to get connected. But my husband's father actually passed away from ALS. I did not know that. I'm so very sorry for your loss. And it took him really quick. So he was 47 when he passed away. And um, 
Yeah, my husband was 47 when he passed away. He was. Gosh, yeah. I got chills. My life was meant to know each other. But not a lot of people really can get this. And again, we were just newly married and his father lived in California. But I remember um, he would talk to him a few times and jokingly, you know, he'd be like, Dad, are you are you drinking? Are you because his voice it first started with Oh, it started with his voice. Yes. Was that the case or not? No, it was the opposite. They do say that if it starts with your voice, that it's faster. Again, they say they don't know anything about ALS. It's the dumbest thing. But for Christopher, it started with a drag in his leg. It's like I have this, my leg keeps twitching. I'll I'll tell it to like, oh, I'm going to run across the street and it won't, it'll take like a second to do it. It's like, it's the weirdest thing. And I was, I was like, hmm, that's weird. Take an ibuprofen, drink a glass of water. You're fine. We have five kids and stuff to do. So you're good. Right. And sometimes I was a loving spouse, but then it got worse and worse and it wasn't getting better. And we had to do a lot of tests. It, it, you can't really diagnose it. It has to be, you have to rule out everything else. You have to rule out MS and a brain tumor and cancer and lots of different kinds of leukemia. So you rule everything out which is the worst, the worst thing in the world. And you cross everything out. And then at the bottom of the list is ALS, which doctors never say until you have it. They don't even say they're testing for it or it's a possibility unless you have it because it's so bad. You know, and it was, it's just interesting as I was reading and learning all about you and your experience, it just like hit me because I'm like, wow, you know, we know what that was like. It was yeah, you get aggressively, it. you know, he ended up getting the computer where... That was Same. so cool. You got Stephen Hawking computer, which he would make so many jokes with. Like that is comedy gold right there. <laughs> so that was the improv coming through. Was the... But, you know, that's the thing. His dad was so fun and so funny. And so he would write jokes like, leave me alone or something. And it yeah. would talk. It would be like yeah. in the voice. And so we would find humor in it. But I remember we were at the restaurant. We were in there in California. And he was just trying to slice um, a roll. and he couldn't get through the role and he was so frustrated. I mean, so coordinated, so capable, such an amazing man his whole life. Right. And he couldn't, he couldn't put butter on this role and he was so mad. And he, this is where my husband's personality comes in. He took that role and he chucked it, he chucked it across the restaurant and he hit some guy in the head and this guy's looking around like, you know, through that role. And we all laughed. We all, you know, laughed with this big smile. But I remember you know, I don't even think I could hear anything come out of his mouth. It was just, you know, um, we still laugh about the roll incident. And I'm sure he's probably up there in heaven saying, hey, I can butter a roll now. You know, I don't know. But it, it was it was a hard process to watch, um, yeah. to see him go. And it felt quick. And you know, with my husband, you know, turning 47, it's like, wow. You know, at the time that was kind of old in our twenties, getting newly married at 22, whatever he was, my husband was 22, 47 felt like really long and really far away. And it's old. not, you'll blink and you'll and be here he, too. He turned around and it's like, my husband's there. And I just, it was ironic because there was some fear and emotion that came up. Like, could this, could my husband have this, you know, I bet you get it too. And, you know, my husband's awesome, but sometimes he'd be like, you know, maybe I'll just, maybe I'm going to die early. Maybe I'm, gonna, I'm like, don't say this, right? Because he never knew if he'd live really old, which he could still live to 70. And that's not old now that we're in our forties, you know, no. but I would love to hear how you kind of went on to be able to share what was going on with 
with this child, with your husband, and how you were able to inspire and be vulnerable with others and communicate and show that connection as you were going through something that hard that I can relate to. Well, I think um, for a long time, I didn't, and I didn't want to. I thought it was gross. I thought, this is so horrible. There's nothing good about it. Uh, There's no uh, little bow to put at the end of the story. Um, because, and then he died, you know, like this is not an inspirational story. I'm, um, mad about this. The grief was overwhelming. I just thought, and, and also it was so overwhelming to me personally. I didn't want anyone to even know how bad it was because I didn't want them to feel even a fraction of how horrible I felt. I thought I was kind of selfish to share my story or, or, uh, and I also thought, you know, Chris wanted a lot of privacy as well. You know, as I look back and stuff, there's not a ton of pictures of him. Uh, there's no pictures of him at his very worst. Uh, he didn't. He, he didn't want that. He didn't want his kids or me or people to remember him like that because he's like, oh, this horrible thing happened. But that's not who I really am. You know, I'm so much more interesting than that. Um, and so, but I remember taking care of Chris and. And him saying, oh, I just, I really think that as much as you hate it, that you'll talk about this someday and, and help a lot of people. Um, I felt like that was really unfair at the time. And I was really upset that he said that. And I said, well, too bad. Cause I'm never talking about this. This is horrible and gross. So sorry. And he was like, no, I think, I think you will. But for me, for the longest time, it was like, if anything good comes from this, then it it should have happened or wouldn't happen. And I want, I was so loyal to the idea that this was the worst thing in the world, which I still think it is the thing that you don't want, the thing that you wish most didn't happen. Right. And, um, especially when my, uh, grief was so, um, tumultuous, I didn't know how to hold it or carry it or make sense of it it was so overwhelming. And especially like when it's new and you're really living with the uncomfortable realities for you, for the people that you love the very, very most, and you see all of them suffering and you're the one that's holding it all together. Um, In those moments, I had a couple of people, uh, some uh, that became new friends, people that I didn't know, but who literally knew how I felt and what I was going through. And some dear friends who had gone through something as horrible, but different. And they would share everything about it with me. And they would share what they hated. They would just be vulnerable and they would share what helped. They would share how they feel now, just their perspective. And I realized it's not gross and exploitative. It's actually quite like sacred and beautiful. And they got me out of a really a horrible place into a place where I could at least breathe a little bit better and carry it. And I know that sounds really dramatic, but I'm, it's not even as dramatic. I mean, it's so much more dramatic than I can even say. So, um, because of that, I just, and because like, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a believer. I'm in it. Right. And through the whole experience, it changed my faith and it really, um, strengthened it. And that was confusing for me. And I really had to deconstruct everything that I believed and knew what to pick up. And the things that I picked up 
uh, were that I am a, a beloved daughter of of God, and that Christ will never leave me, and is the only person who really understands all of that. And there is like a little, there's just such a, a sacred power in that. Um, and with that, like I wanted to ease other people's suffering, you know, and, and I think that, and I know that we do that when we are vulnerable and make ourselves uncomfortable and sort of lay it out what we really think, not the platitudes that we think that they want to hear or they need to hear, but those real, just being real because we're all so different. Our situations are different and we need to pick out what is meant for us, what will help us. You know, I had a lot of people, you know, send me things or like say, this really helped me. And it didn't help me. It was the opposite of helpful. And it's not their fault. At least they were trying. And there was some sort of like beauty in that, that they would just be like, Hey, let it try this. And, and so I, you know, I, I know that not everything will hit, but there's some things that people said to me or wrote to me. Um, a person sent an anonymous letter to me that is just like so dear to me. It helped me so much. I still don't know who this person is. So you just never know. But um, but I really just watching the best person that you know, your favorite person in the whole entire world um, suffer and die um, changes you. <laughs> and you really see what's important and it gives you laser focus. If you let it, if you want it, it can also like destroy you. Sure. Um, but you, you do get to choose, I think. Um, and, and on most days I, I choose to see the world and our lives the way that Christopher saw them. You know, every time I felt really, I, and still now I feel really sorry for myself or I feel really bad or I just, I'm just done. I think about Christopher and how he lived his life, especially at the end and the things that he said and, and what he did. And I think, well, he had it worse than me so I can do it. Right. And he really thought I could. Um, anyway, I know that's kind of a long answer, but that is, that's the full answer of why I share what I share. I don't think it's a coincidence that during the hardest time of my life, um, God gave me a platform. I thought it was a little weird at the time, kind of like a joke. Um, but, um, now, it's like you have no excuse here you go well no it just like when things are so clear and you're just like praying like what am I going to do with my life and who am I and what's you know all these existential questions when sometimes in our lives like a handful of times like three maybe four times I've had like a really clear vision of this is what you should do right like you have those little moments I think most of the time we get to decide right like we get to choose well this is how I want to live my life and I want this and I want this is this okay and then you just kind of move into your life and then you know you create a lot of that but I do think that there are some times you know following the the blessings of the people and things that are put in your life but I think that there are some times where it's so clear where it's like this is what I'm asking you to do and I know it's really hard, but I want you to do this thing. And then you sort of like wrestle with it. And oh, yeah. I, sort of, I, I don't have faith of a child. I have faith of a teenager. Like, fine, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm working on it, but I have to kind of like wrestle with it for a minute and complain about it a lot and then take a deep breath and go, okay, but you know, I just, I just want to do the right thing. So. Well, what I love about I'm what so you're sharing, that was beautiful. It's like, um, 
you had people at the time you were going through the hardest things show up who had experienced it, who had been there. And I really sometimes do believe that, especially on this podcast, because we have people that are speaking about, you know, losing loved ones, losing limbs, um, you know, a car accident that had killed families and just, I mean, everything you can imagine, but looking to see it almost as as a gift, the silver lining in what they have gone through to help them now be on the side to create confident communication, to share and speak to others. It's all how we perceive it. And the other thought that came to me as you were talking about him, your husband, Chris, he seemed like an amazing, like he always wanted you to fulfill those dreams and those hopes. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I believe sometimes these best friends of ours come down and like, hey, I'm going to help you be able to, to do that. And it's almost as if this whole purpose and mission that you have to do exactly what you were meant to do. Like he's up there like, Hey, I don't know. It just feels like a beautiful story. to me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. I don't have visions of him. I don't feel him by my side, cheering me on every minute. Death is the worst. (laughs) It is silent. It is. You feel on your own. There's, whether I was agnostic or a believer, I really do feel like there's no taking away the sting of death, that pain and that of, of that adjustment of living in a new way. I really do think that, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to, you know, I have friends of lots of different beliefs and faith. And I, and I appreciate those even, you know, who say, you know, I, I, who don't believe in God, who don't believe, you know, they've been able to help me in ways too, because I just think that whatever our journey is, whatever the choices there are, there are certain underlying things about being vulnerable about it. Now, having said that, um, as a believer, I've always thought, yeah, why, why is that? Why is that separation there? I don't know, but I do like to give like (laughs) when Chris was alive, he was always like, listen, I know I make mistakes and I can be a jerk or what, but like, and I'm not perfect, but like, I never like intentionally am trying to hurt your feelings. Like, I'm like, I'm going to say this and it's going to get her some, like, it's just me being dumb or, or thoughtless or whatever. So just give me the benefit of the doubt. And that was like something that we did in our marriage. Like we would bump into each other. We would offend each other or make each other mad, but we always tried to give each other the benefit of the doubt, you know, assume the best. And I think it really helped in our marriage a lot. And so now I assume that he's nearby. I assume he is watching over my children. I assume he's cheering me on. I don't really know. And therein, you know, we could go on a big existential talk about faith and, and what that means. And, but I like to operate on the assumption that that is true, but I do not have a sure knowledge of it. And that creates a lot of pain, but um, that's life. And sometimes maybe we don't need to know. We don't have to know all of it. We don't have to have all the answers. I know. I really want to know though. Like really. <laughs> so do I. I'm like, like so, like so bad. Sometimes it causes me physical pain. <laughs> like I want to know, you know? Oh, you're funny. You're a lot like me. So tell me you're at the ages of your kids. How old are the children? So I have a 25, 23, 20, 18 and 15 year old. Oh, wow. So sophomore all the way up. Sophomore all the way up. Did they graduate from sophomore starting school yet? Last week or this week? Yeah, yesterday. My, oh, my, my gosh. And this is the first time in 20 years I've only had one kid start school. 
Oh, it's wow. so weird. I can't imagine how I'd love to be. I'm like practically at your age almost, but here I've got it's weird. School and <laughs> already yeah. graduated. I do have a junior that just went in, so she's amazing. It's so fun. that's awesome. But you know, um, how are they doing with everything? How has they're amazing? They're so great. They're a lot, they're all a lot like their dad, which is the best thing in the world. They're funny, they're resilient, they're creative, they're um, and they're very, very sweet and kind to me. Oh. Yeah, they're they're the best kids. And that's what I I always say to them too, like, I feel so bad for you. Like my my parents are both still alive. Like, I don't know what your experience is like. You know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong, I feel bad for me, but like I feel really bad for me, you guys, you know, the kids. And I say, but I, I did like find you the very best dad. So there's that. Like, I mean, I could have found you like a mediocre dad and he could still be here and law, but I found you the very best dad. And so they love that. And you know what? They really showed up. Like I, I, it's such a gift that they really don't, I hope, um, uh, they just really just don't have any regrets about those, those last year. They, they showed up, they took care of him. They were they served their dad in a way that most kids never get the ex- experience to. And it's changed them as people. Um, they're amazing. Well, it sounds like you said it was during COVID that this whole, yeah. like, maybe that was even the coolest part was the unity of family. I don't know. At the time, I would not have said that. And even right. now I'm like, it was so bad. It was, it was so hard for them as they're developing their brains. They're completely separated from friends and family and their dad is dying and then he passes away and they can't be with their friends. They can't go to school. They can't hug their cousins. I mean, it was so extreme. Yeah. 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 It was so hard. That was the next question was like, when did you find it the most difficult or the struggle as you were working through that and continuing? Would you say COVID was the time that was really, Um, you know, I think everybody would look at me and say, Oh, probably like just like right before he died. And when he died, that was probably the hardest time, right? Because I was working full time, taking care of Christopher full time. It was the pandemic. It was ridiculous. So I'd get up at four in the morning and do the early morning radio show and then come home and Chris and uh, get Christopher ready for the day, which was like a two hour process, you know, and do all that stuff on and no AIDS, um, no CNAs, no therapists could come in and the hospice people couldn't come in. And then I would check on the emotional temperature of my children, which was not going great. We were all exhausted. I take care of him. And then at 10 PM, I'd go to bed and tag team my oldest um, son who should be in college, should be having fun, should be developing relationships and not be depressed. And he would take the 10 PM to 10 AM shift. And that was insane. And yet I felt such a sense of purpose. I felt totally carried by God, by outside forces, like a hundred percent, because I felt so like, I felt so needed. And I felt like everything I was doing was so important because it was, and then he died and you feel this like sort of spiritual carry. Okay. I can do this. I can do this. You feel people's prayers. It's like super like, okay, we did it. He's not in pain anymore. And then everything gets quiet and things start opening up and, um, there's no more casseroles. There's no more prayers for you. There's no more 
and you live with the reality that for me was the worst time of all of it because you don't have your best friend to help you through it. You just helped them cross the finish line and now you're suffering and you're all alone. It was really, really intense for a long time. Um, but, um, uh, did you when, when keep I, sharing about it? Like when you were doing your radio and your podcast? No, not at all. Not at, at this all. time I had zero perspective, so I never spoke about it and I was not talking about it. And the, and I'm glad I didn't because I didn't have any perspective and it would have, it would have been chaotic and not appropriate at all. Um, plus the privacy of my children, uh, of me, I was just tr- literally trying to get through the day. It was uh, just enough just to get out of bed. Oh, I've been there. Go to work, like was like, okay, maybe. And then I would just come home and cry. Like, I just, I was like, oh, good. Everyone's good. Everyone's good. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, I just, I hit a wall. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that can be such a hard space to be in, but thank you for being vulnerable because I think there's many that learn the lessons of life, like super fast. And I took a long time before I would start talking about anything. In fact, on the Lisa show right now, I'm doing a season all about caregiving. It's been three years since Chris died. And I feel like just now I'm able to talk about it. Now, now I'll tell you what it was really like a year ago, even six months ago, I'd be like, nope, not talking about it. I I couldn't. So I do think that we need to give, I, I, I felt so much pressure to hurry up. And so you're good. You look good. You look like you're doing well. You're still doing your radio job. So you're good. You know, people would have this frantic look on their faces. And I just thought, you don't care. I'm not going to tell you what it's really like because right. you couldn't handle it, you know? And, and, and you contrast that with the friends who were like, how are you today? Like, what does your like life look like right now? You know, you can tell me and they have the space and the energy for you to go. And this was really hard. And I thought of something really funny. And all I wanted to do is call Chris. And I just forgot for just a second. And then I remembered and it was awful. You know, and they're like, that's awful. And that's it. They don't have to say anything else. It just made me feel like, oh, this isn't so big. This isn't so overwhelming. And they're going to walk with me in it. I don't have to avoid everybody at the grocery store now. And just kind of that holding space. You know, I've, I've had two dear friends of mine both lose their daughters within the last little while. And one told me um, the most amazing, whenever they get the message of like, this is horrific. I, I can't believe your family's dealing with this. It would just like put them down in these holes of like, oh, this is not an encouraging message. But to be able to just say, you know, I don't even know what to say right now, except for I, I just love you. And I, I'm just praying. I'm, I'm here. Just yeah, listen. That's so helpful. Those were the ones that was like, okay, thank you. Because sometimes people don't know what to say. No. And I think most of the time we don't, because we don't know what that person is experiencing. You know, it's interesting because we started off this conversation talking about humor and I have been so funny during this whole interview, haven't I? And, but I, but it's so funny because you have days like this, right? Like it's been three years since my husband passed. And sometimes, you know, right? But I might be having a great day and I'm just buying milk at day's market. And I, you know, and I'm just like, and I'm in a good mood. And if somebody says, no, I mean, how is everything? It's so horrible, right? You you start thinking, oh, should I not be happy? Should I not, 
you know, we never know where we are on that journey, but yeah, giving somebody permission of, of to just be whatever they want to be in that moment is such a gift. I love it. I love everything you're sharing. You know, I, and I, I just know you through mutual friends, but I keep wanting to go to my stupid humor. I'm going to call you my Dixie chick for now. I love country, but here's the thought that I had as we're kind of closing and just so many beautiful things is, you know, what would you say, Lisa, to the, really, I started this podcast to help the one person, the one person that felt like they couldn't connect, like they were completely alone. They had no way to be able to communicate what's going on in their life. And they're, and it's all, you know, we're having illnesses. We're having deaths of family. Um, yeah, it's serious. Children, all of it, right? Mm-hmm. But what would you say to the one person thinking of those painful points that you could give them hope or a message to say to the one that could inspire them to share, to move forward, to communicate, to connect with someone? What would you say to them? What advice would you have? Um, What a great question, because that's what I'm concerned with, too. I think the first thing I would say is I'm so sorry. Like, there are horrible things that happen to people. I think when it happens to you and your whole world is just and your dreams and your hopes, everything is destroyed. It sometimes you just want to lay on the floor for just a second to catch your breath. And I just don't want to be like, oh, it's it's okay. Just follow these three things and then you'll be happy. It's I just want to honor wherever that person is right now. So if they're laying on the floor and they can't get up, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. Like you're the the worst thing that has happened to you is the worst thing. Right? Yeah, a lot of times we want to wish it away and say, well, it's not as bad as her. She had young kids when her husband, it's not as bad as, as her, you know, at least I have my, you know, we, at least we, we qualify our pain and I just want to acknowledge it first. I'm so sorry. It is the worst thing because it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And I, and, and, and on the tales of that, I will say just like looking over the last several years of how I've lived my life, the people who have, have helped me the most, the things that have that I've had to learn over and over again is um, it's okay to look for the joy in it. It's okay to find the humor in it. You can still be loyal to your, this is the worst thing that happened and I'm still mad and I'm still sad and I'm still angry. And don't you dare, you know, try to snap me out of it. You know, that kind of loyalty to, to that. It's okay for the, and too. it's okay to be grieving, to be sad and laugh. Uh, you know, it's okay to be devastated and talk to your girlfriends and laugh about the dumbest thing and make jokes like those kinds of things. Those moments in the beginning just felt like little cracks of sunlight in my dark and dreary world. And, um, you know, I hate to use that metaphor of like, let the light in because, because everyone uses it, but it's a good metaphor. That's probably why everyone uses it. But you don't need to be loyal to grief and pain. You can be loyal to who you really are. Like my husband, he's like, "Ugh, ALS is the least interesting thing about me. I mean, I have a PhD for crying out loud. I'm super funny. I'm very handsome. He'd be the first one to like list all the other qualities that he has. And so I try to remember that. Yes, I'm a mysterious widow who had this horrible tragedy with these five amazing children, but I'm more than that, you know, 
I have other offerings. This is my life. We only get that one life. So looking for that joy and being loyal to the joy of our lives as well and collecting that, making that bigger and louder and brighter in any way we can, I think is okay. That's beautiful. And I just had a thought pop into my head because this, you know, Chris sounded so fun and dynamic and humorous. I mean, what what do you think he would say if he were here to the people? I mean, I just had that thought pop into my mind. What would he, do you have any thoughts on that? Like... Well, I think he would say to me, "Ugh, get over it. I'm not that funny. I'm not that great. Um, move on. Talk about something else. He would make some big joke like that. I think he would just, I think he would say, you know, um, and he said, he wrote his life story. He talked to us very directly. He's like, because of the hope in Christ, like we can be free from this. Like, that that really is the hope that we have is hope in Christ who will always be there. That's not nothing. And you can choose to believe it no matter what your circumstances are. You can choose to believe that and um, we'll all be made whole. I really just feel like he would want me to be happy for him right now. I feel that very strongly that he did it so well. I And I think it's okay to be happy for ourselves and for our loved ones, I, I I think that's what he would say. He would, um, you know, he was trapped in his body. He was claustrophobic. A lot of people don't know that. He did such a good job. He got frustrated, like, because he's human and everything. But overall, he was so, he was serving other people. He was making other people laugh. He was worried about all of us while he couldn't move or speak. And I think that was more torture from him. I think about that. And, oh, I get so upset even thinking about it. But um, I really do believe that now he's free from that, right? He's free of that body that was totally broken. Um, And I think that there's an important lesson in that. And he would want people to know, I can run, I can play the piano, I can like, please be happy for me. So um, to not live in the worst moments, but again, looking for that joy and and looking forward to that hope. uh, And it really can motivate you to choose um, the best life that you can. I just, I just have to believe that. I love that, you know, and I was thinking back to like, right before TJ's dad passed and, you know, they would write, they would, they would, that was the time when email was out, you know, what was it? The slow mail, but they would type and it was just a beautiful time. But then on the computer, he would always make his jokes, his dad. But I think one day TJ said, you know, what advice would you give me like in my life as yours is coming to an end? And about just loving your life, finding the joy, just choose to have a joyful life, kind of. I mean, I can't remember the exact things he said, but those were his last words was, I mean, and I go back to this every podcast, but it's not about the circumstances of our life. It's choosing to find joy and peace and happiness amongst whatever we have going. And we can find that if we choose. And do you believe that? I just, I do. I believe that. And I believe that you just revealed something else that it was the way that Christopher lived, which is it's about other people. Like life is about our relationships. You know, he was always trying to think, well, who could I help? And he was messaging people all the time and trying to help and uh, make them laugh. And, and that, that, those are the things that matter. We think it matters like what our career was and how awesome we were, or, you know, um, but it, it's it's about how we make other people feel. 
oh, the influence that we have. And he had a huge influence. And I was a, I'm able to see it in a way that I don't think anyone else was the totality of, of his life. Um, all the people he affected, I get to hear that. It's such an honor. It's such an honor. And it's such a motivation to live my life like that. Oh, and I love it. And I really think Lisa, you're doing the same thing, infecting people with light and love. And oh, just, that's nice of you. I don't know. We'll see. When and I'm dead. humor. And no, so that humor. <laughs> I got that dark humor. I won't know until I'm dead. Then I'll be mysterious. <laughs> well, I have absolutely loved our podcast today. And hopefully, you know, as we leave, Hopefully we've given you hope that if we can share our messages and that if we can choose to go forward in creating confident communication and being connected and sharing the trials we're in, then you can too. And that you never know who you could inspire or touch. Almost like when you went back to the people showed up right when I needed it. The anonymous letter came. Like you never know what a difference you can make by sharing something that you've gone through that could absolutely inspire and touch someone else. So I just want to thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. So we're creating confident communication, one person at a time, and you've got this, and we will see you next week, my friends. See ya. Thanks so much.